Good morning. And it's good to see a few old friends here in attendance. Welcome. And it's great to see new friends that are in attendance. We're grateful you're here to worship with us this morning. And this morning I am, and I, and I warn in advance, I, I had a pad that died and I went out and got a new one and I thought I'd try and save some money and I went to a smaller one, not really realizing what that's going to do on, you know, these eyes and the ability to see, but I'm going to do my best as we go along. I may have to transition to paper, who knows. But I'm picking up this morning uh, where we left off in the book of Acts and uh, as I jumped into it, it's a, it's a, it's a really fascinating um, part of uh, Luke's story, uh, the birth of the church. We're going to be in Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 22. But as I started studying in this, one of the things that popped into my head, and sometimes you can just never control this stuff, was arguably the greatest movie ever made. Now, you may argue with me, you may um, dispute the fact, you may not even like some of the actors, but Tom Cruise and Jack Nicholson came together in a story that I think a few of you may know. Well, maybe not. It's A Few Good Men. And if you remember back, it's a story, it takes place, Tom Cruise, he's a naval um, attorney, and he's brought into a case to investigate and see if there is a, a, a case to prosecute on a commander of the naval base down in Cuba, or actually the, the, the marine base down in Cuba. And uh, through the whole story, as it, as it evolves, what's clear is everybody knows the truth. Everybody. But his challenge is, can he prove it in court? And it comes down, he goes through several key witnesses that are just going to close the case for him. One dies, one is, is uh, disqualified, and he's finally left with the defendant himself and needing him to say the truth. And as I, as I thought about that movie, and maybe some of you know the line where he says, I want the truth. Close to it. But Nick, well, no, 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 no. Nicholson responds in saying, you can't handle the truth. Okay? <laughs> okay, I knew some of you had watched it. <laughs> So as we enter this bit of the story, Peter is picking up from, if you remember previously, uh, this, is, this is the events of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit has been poured out upon the disciples and the apostles. That's been seen in these dramatic displays of the power of the Holy Spirit. The commotion has brought thousands of people that are around the temple grounds. This is during the festival season of Pentecost where many, many people come from 
not only within the city, but from surrounding areas. They're hearing this commotion, and they're asking, what does this mean, right? Well, let me pick up here in Acts 2.22, and if you have your Bible, you can turn there with me, and let's read the beginning of the next stage of Peter's sermon. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Peter says, Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. And Peter continues, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one, that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, I'm sorry, being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not a, that, I'm sorry, these glasses are really going bad, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So as I started this, I, 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 of course, bit off a little bit more than I could chew. I, I started thinking we would go all the way from 22 to 33. We're not going to do quite that much today. And Lord willing, if I'm back in the pulpit, um, we'll try and pick up. But I want to pick up with beginning of this section in verse 22, where Peter says, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. So the first question I want to ask is, what does it mean that he was a man attested by God? Well, it means, the word attested means to be proved. It means that he, he actually demonstrated who Jesus was. Well, how did he do that, you might ask? He did so, as Peter says, 
by mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him. You know, and I think so oftentimes we hear something like that. We even read this verse from Peter and we sort of jump over. And the significance of that doesn't quite impact us. And I thought I would do some homework and hunting around, I found a good list on the miracles of Jesus. And I thought we would just step through these. So follow along with me. And of course, we all know Jesus, his first miracle, changing water into wine. Jesus cured a nobleman's son, John 4, 46, who lay sick in Capernaum. And we can't forget the great haul of fish that was brought in, confirming to the apostles themselves who Jesus was. You remember when Simon Peter saw what had happened, that dramatic scene, he falls at his knees and says, go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. And Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid, from now on you will fish for people. Well, Jesus cast out unclean spirits. He cured Peter's mother-in-law of a fever, and she hopped up and immediately started serving them. Jesus healed the leper. He healed the centurion's servant, a man of great faith, though not of the Jewish faith. You remember, he came to him and he said, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man of, under authority with soldiers under me. I, I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. He understood and recognized a man of authority. And of course, Jesus raised the widow's son from the dead in the town of Nain. Jesus stilled the storm. And the man looking at him said, what kind of man is this? Jesus cured two demoniacs, cast out demons. He cured a paralytic. Jesus raised the synagogue leader's daughter from the dead. He cured a woman of an issue of blood. He opened the eyes of two blind men. He loosened the tongue of the mute. He healed an invalid at the pool called Bethsaida. Bethsaida. And Jesus restored the hand of the withered hand of a man. And of course, the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000, curing deaf and mute, opening the eyes of the blind. And then the dramatic story, Jesus opened the eyes of the man born blind. And we'll hear more about that later. Jesus cured a man of dropsy. Jesus cleansed 10 lepers. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And in that scene, if you remember, therefore many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. 
But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Jesus caused the freak tree to wither before them. And of course, the night of his betrayal, Jesus restores the ear of the high priest's servant. And Jesus rose from the dead after being hung on a cross. And finally, just to put a cap on it, just prior to the ascension, after the resurrection, Jesus brings in another haul of fish for the guides. This is significant because these things happened. These things happened. And they didn't just happen as stories. They didn't just happen in some secluded area. They happened among small groups. They happened among groups of thousands. They happened in villages, on rooftops, in the country, in cities, in synagogues, among the poor, among the wealthy, among the powerful and among the religious leaders. And we shouldn't miss that it says in this text from Peter that it was attested to you by God. These these things were done in the presence of men. He says again, looking back at verse 22, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God, God did these things through him in your midst as you you yourselves know. And you know what? Nobody claimed any differently. Peter doesn't record anybody saying, what? Don't remember. Doesn't ring a bell. Everybody was aware of these things. In fact, if you look back into earlier parts in the gospel, you see Many mentions of this, uh, starting with Nicodemus. John chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. God had proved to Nicodemus that Jesus was a man from God. And talking about the man born blind from birth, after Jesus heals him and the Pharisees hear about it, they begin to persecute him. They didn't believe him. They call his parents in. The parents only confirm, yes, that's our son. Yes, he was born blind. They keep asking him, how did Jesus do this? How did Jesus do this? They finally become furious with the man, declaring that Jesus is a sinner, saying, we know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, Jesus, we do not know where he comes from. Well, the man responds in an amazing way. He says, why this is an amazing thing. I can almost hear the sarcasm in his voice. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. 
We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. God had proved to the man born blind that Jesus was from God. They couldn't deny it. Jesus did mighty works, wonders, and signs amongst them. They couldn't deny it, so they persecuted him instead for doing mighty works, wonders, and signs on the wrong day or to the wrong kind of person. But what mostly upset them was that Jesus said he did them by the authority of God himself. Remember the scene with the paralytic, Mark 2, 5, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God? And Jesus, knowing their hearts, said, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. You see, the clear record is that these Wonders were evident to everyone in the region. If you remember from last week, we talked about the story with Peter and Cornelius in Caesarea. It begins with Peter receiving a vision from the Lord and then an angel telling him that someone would come from a man named Cornelius and to go with them. And sure enough, at that moment, the door knocks. Men are at the door. We're from Cornelius. Will you come with us? Yes, I will come with you. Peter travels with them. And he says this to them. He says to the crowd, the family gathered at Cornelius' home, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea. So he wasn't trying to sell them something new or some new idea or a story from a different town. These people knew what had happened. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God had anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. For God was with him, and we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. You know, I think it's interesting as we think of the disciples primarily as the witnesses of Jesus' life and ministry, you know, so are everyone else. I love how Luke puts it, chapter 24, 
This is telling the story of the disciples on the road to Emmaus. This is after the crucifixion. It's after the, the resurrection. And they're walking on the road. It says they're heading to Emmaus. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him, the scripture says. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? See, the clear expectation of the disciples is everybody knows this. Everybody is talking about it. Everybody has seen what Jesus has done. And finally, even the crucifixion scene itself is proof that everyone knew and saw these miracles. Matthew records in chapter 27, verse 41, so also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel, let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God, let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. Right there, the priests, the scribes, they're testifying to the fact that he saved people. He healed people. He cured people. They see these things and still they refuse to believe. Well, not only was the life of Jesus attested by God with works and wonders and signs, the death of Jesus was ordained by God. It says in verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Well, what is God's definite plan? We understand a plan, right? Draw a blueprint, draw a plan. We're going to go from A, B to C. I think they say in, in war, a, pl- a, a battle plan is good until the first bullet is shot and then the whole thing is out the door, right? Well, God's plan is a definite plan. A definite plan is one that is fixed. It's ordained, it's decreed by God. It's not an accident or mistake, or a plan gone wrong. There is no backup plan. There is no plan B. God has one plan. You know, when Jesus spoke of it the night of his betrayal, he said, for the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to the man to whom he is betrayed. The disciples grew. They had to grow in this understanding that God had a definite plan. Acts 3.18, a little bit later on, Peter, again, in a sermon on the street, says, but what God foretold by the mouth of all prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. They began to understand the sovereignty of God 
rules over all things, even when their enemies seem to triumph, even when things don't look so great. It changed how they lived, and it changed how they served God. Remember when Peter and John were arrested, this is early on in the book of Acts, they're questioned, they're threatened. In fact, let me jump over there. Acts 4, 23 to 29. They had been traveling through the streets. A miracle had been done. A commotion had begun. And the Pharisees didn't like it. And they ended up, uh, the men ended up getting arrested, questioned, threatened. How would we respond? Oh my gosh, this is, this is not what I expected. This, is, this was not part of my plan. This is all going wrong. Is that how they responded? Verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the, the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. They they saw the sovereignty of God. They trusted in God's plan. And they asked for boldness. Isn't that amazing? Their prayer wasn't for deliverance, for rescue. Lord, smite those guys. It was boldness. When they had trouble, their response wasn't to think all had gone wrong. God had forsaken. Rather, they prayed to act in the confidence that God was on the throne and his plans would not be thwarted. They prayed for boldness to proclaim what they knew to be true. And you have to ask, how different would our, our personal ministries be if we responded to setbacks and difficulties with such boldness and confidence in our sovereign God? Amen? So not only was the death of Jesus according to the sovereign plan of God, I'm sorry. So Jesus' death was according to the sovereign plan of God. It says that Jesus was, that God had foreknowledge. 
What is foreknowledge? Foreknowledge is forethought by prearrangement. It means not only do all things happen according to the definite plan of God, all things happen according to the foreknowledge of God. God knows what is going to happen next. He knows what is going to happen to you tomorrow. He knows what's going to happen to you next week. He knows what's going to happen next year. He knows even if you will have a next year. God will not be surprised by some unforeseen event. Foreknowledge of his church is seen. Peter talks about it in his first epistle. He says to those elect exiles of the dispersion. Now these are the people because of perhaps persecution, some type of, of, of suffering are no longer in the region but have been dispersed, have been spread out in uh, cities throughout the region, around the Mediterranean and so forth. Exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia are chosen, he says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. All that they had been through, all the difficulties, forced relocation perhaps, all this is according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Well, Paul talks about the foreknowledge of God for his children. Romans 8, 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. What a comfort this foreknowledge is. To know that, that as I am chosen by God, that can't change. This is by the definite plan of God. Not, not a plan A that, oh, well, Mike kind of went off the rails and I'll have to go to plan B and he's actually not part of that one. That's not how God works. God has a definite plan and in his foreknowledge, he has chosen us. For those who have put their faith in Christ, turned away from those things that displease God, he made a child of God. Peter tells us that it has been God's plan for you since eternity past. And what he had foreseen since before the world was created. That's really hard to get your mind around, but it's, it's what the Bible teaches. Romans 8.16, Paul says, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Now here's the kicker. The end of verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. See, in the kingdom of God, God ordains all things and his creation, men and women, are all 
morally responsible for their actions. How do these go together? I really can't tell you, but it's, it's what the Bible teaches. Luke 22 and 19 is helpful. Looking again at the Last Supper, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of, who, of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. God is sovereign, and man is still morally accountable for all of his actions. Well, not only here does Peter tell us that God ordained the death of Christ at the hands of lawless man, God proves who Jesus is by raising him from the dead. Verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Loosed by the pangs of death, all the pain, all the suffering and sorrow of death, destined for every man, every woman, Jesus was forever freed from. Hebrews 2.14 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he, Jesus, himself likewise partook of the same things that, though, that through death he might destroy the one who has power of death, that is, the devil. And Paul, speaking to Timothy, encouraging him, says, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which now he has manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Remember the crowd that was first attracted at that, that scene after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit during Pentecost? They asked, what does this all mean? It means this. God has proven Jesus was sent by God. It means that the mighty works, wonders, and signs witnessed by all attest who Jesus is. And it means that God ordained all things, even the death of Jesus. And by the means of the resurrection... It means that Jesus has the power over life and death. 
They began to understand these words. And if you remember the text from last week, Peter finished by, by quoting a section of Joel. That was Acts 2.21 was the last verse, and it said, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Well, Peter has much more to say. As I said, I started out finding a much bigger piece of text. But this gives us a wonderful foundation. And this is the first sermon of the apostolic age. Peter's first sermon, and perhaps one of the greatest sermons ever given, next to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Well, let's pray. Father, again, we just thank you for the record of these first days of the church. Father, how you ordained all things from beginning to end. You were in control. Father, how you proved before the people of Israel and now recorded in scripture for us beyond the shadow of a doubt Jesus was a man sent from God Lord we just thank you for the life of Christ we thank you for the death of Christ Father as we read more we're going to hear more of what that means and how that impacts us today. For people here who have put their faith in Christ and are, and are learning to walk each day faithfully, Father, I pray that we would learn from this text not to grumble, not to complain, and not to be afraid. You will not abandon your church you will not abandon your children. You are sovereign. You have a plan. It is a definite plan. It is an unchanging plan. And Father, we thank you for the salvation that we have through faith in Christ. And Father, for those that are here that perhaps are uncertain about who this Jesus is, I pray that they would not stop here. And perhaps even this morning, they realize he is who everybody has been telling me he is. He is the son of God. And when he went to the cross, by the definite plan of God the Father, he laid down his life, shed his blood, and paid the debt that you and I Oh, before God, for we are accountable for every action we do in this life. Father God, we thank you that in Christ is newness of life. Behold, you have made all things new. May you bring salvation today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.
Amen. Amen.